I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, KRCL's show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. We think that gets our arms around just about everybody who's working to make our community better for all. On the show tonight, the return of Kilo Zamora, gender studies professor at the University of Utah. He and I have been crowdsourcing conversations with folks about gender and nature for a class that he is teaching this semester as we speak. He wants to draw people from the community into the conversation in a transparent way while drawing on the experience of special guests. And tonight, Kilo and I will be talking with chef Max Winterhaller about gender, nature, and the kitchen. She also has a background in anthropology, and we're gonna ask the age-old question about barbecue skills, nature or nurture. The Slam Dance Film Festival starts today. Can you believe? It's been around since 1995 as the upstart to the Sundance Film Festival. I'll get you a preview with festival producer Michael Morin and Taylor Miller, manager for Slam Dance Unstoppable. But we're gonna start tonight with our friends at Volunteers of America of Utah, just one of the many social service providers to our unsheltered community members. Volunteers started early this morning on this year's point in time count across the state in order to understand issues facing those experiencing homelessness, including COVID-19 impacts. It's going on through Saturday, and I caught up with Kathy Bray, CEO of Volunteers of America of Utah, to find out more. Kathy Bray, President and CEO, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Laura. Always happy to be with you. We're going to check in on your youth programs in particular. Um, and I do want to say I'm very sad to hear that you had to close Mod's Cafe, mm-hmm. the coffee shop over on Night South where you were training homeless youth in new skills, but a victim of the pandemic. I know it was, we were really sad to close that program. We're making sure that youth have employment opportunities out of our youth resource center, but that particular one is no longer there. Well, hopefully, maybe it could be there in the future. I'm just going to hold out hope for mods, Kathy, because I loved it. And and I always had great interaction with your, your baristas in training. Do you want to say thank you to all the listeners who participated in our Gifts for Good program at the end of the year? We were able to bring you on as a community partner and help uh, KRCL and help kids who needed their ID kits. That's crucial to rebuilding a life for anyone. But if you've never had control of your identity documents, it's even harder, Kathy. Yes, I definitely want to say thank you to the KRCL listeners. And thank you to KRCL for, uh, you know, taking some of the donations that come to you and sharing them with Volunteers of America and homeless youth getting IDs, which is a initial step for them to, of course, get jobs and housing and, and all of the things that we support. Let's talk about the point in time count, what it is, how folks can take part or help, and then what that data is used for by nonprofits like yourself to provide services in our community. Sure. Um, The point in time happens once a year. Um, It is a count of homeless individuals, a point in time count. Uh, So we do our best to Um, identify homeless individuals who are in shelters. We do a survey and that's the easier part Um, and also transitional housing. The more difficult part and the part that we need a lot of community volunteers 
is for the unsheltered count where we create small teams of say four or five people and we take geographic sections of Salt Lake County and the teams go and they look for individuals who may be camping out. Um, and we may have some conversations with people and do some collection of information. Our homeless outreach team is often team leads um, with those unsheltered teams because um, that is part of the services we provide in the community year round. Now, there's a great website where folks can contact the coordinator closest to them across the state. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's endutahhomelessness.org. So folks, you can, can check that out. Um, I wanted to get into the the youth programs that you offer through VOA Utah because the AMP program and Youth Mentoring Month is happening. So let's introduce some of your, your team workers here. We have Sydney LaCour and Key Cable. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. Sydney, tell us what you do with VOA. Um, so I'm the Division Director of Youth Homeless Services, and I oversee all of our youth programs. Um, the most popular, familiar for a lot of people is our Youth Resource Center um, that provides emergency shelter and drop-in center services for youth that are experiencing homelessness. Um, but in addition to that, we also have um, a transition home, a legal clinic, and uh, a lot of people are less familiar with our prevention services, which is where Amplified Mentoring, the Amplified Mentoring Program comes in. Um, and so that's a really neat program where we're targeting youth that are 12 to 18 and at risk. Um, so going into Title I schools and providing um, some evidence-based curriculums, as well as um, matching youth with one-to-one -one mentors, which is pretty unique. And Key, you've moved into this role now as the AMP coordinator since last we had you on the show. What is it you're looking for in terms of mentors? Our listeners, I think, could line up quite nicely with this program. I think that's such a great question. I think there's a lot of misconceptions when we think about mentors. The only thing that I'm looking for is someone who's willing to be consistent and show up. Uh, all these kids need is somebody to be reliable, to be trustworthy, somebody that they can communicate with. Uh, so if it's something that you're interested in, why not try it out? The only thing you need to be is willing. Be willing. Okay. And how can people uh, apply? The best way to apply would be to go to our website, which is voaut.org, and look under our volunteer opportunities. Uh, you can learn more information about what our mentoring program entails. Uh, we do ask for a minimum nine-month commitment of about six to eight hours per month. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really not that much time, uh, and it's super simple to get involved. And Sydney and Key, can you give us maybe a, a read of the room, so to speak, when it comes to what you're hearing from your youth clients about what they need or what they're experiencing that the general public may not be aware of? Sydney. Sure. So um, we, it's been really interesting. So this is um, funding that we've had for the last three years, and we currently have 28 matches. And so basically what we found is there's, um, just a lot of benefit and the power of human connection and really just like offering another perspective or way of life to youth that have, you know, been um, like victims of their circumstance. And so really it offers a nice, um, just like pers perspective shift as well as um, alliance with an adult that maybe they wouldn't have access to or get to know in such a close way. Um, so from the youth perspective, it's really been 
beneficial in just kind of shifting some of the trajectories of those youth. Um, and from the volunteer perspective, it's been really fun to hear their um, experiences that they have just doing normal kid stuff that a lot of youth that are experiencing poverty don't get to have. Um, I know we've taken the youth to like Lagoon, which many of them, you know, in that 12 to 18 year old ra range um, is kind of, you know, a local rite of passage and many of them haven't been able to do that. So really just offering, um, you know, some childhood experiences to these youth that don't have the opportunity to do that. Key one in three young people grow up without a mentor. Like you're saying, showing up is what's important. Oh, 100%. I think that when I think of youth today and communicating with the mentees that are currently in our program, they just want to feel empowered. I think a lot of what Sid was saying, they're coming from homes where they may have an excess amount of responsibility or just lack of opportunity. So having a, a mentor that's available to take them to these activities, to give them the space to just be completely autonomous and, and just to have some fun and be a kid, I think is so, so important. And we've seen statistically that these kids grow up to be leaders. They grow up to be better academically. They mentor other people as they go into adulthood. So there's there's so much data backing up why mentorship is so important. And Kathy Bray, president and CEO of VOA Utah, in your latest newsletter, you share the story of Monica Coulomb, who is uh, a mentor um, who had a rough life growing up herself and is now paying it forward by being a mentor with VOA and its AMP program. Yes, and I, I think that for so many of us, we often decide to give back to others in the community in a way to also help provide some personal healing. Um, we all have our struggles, and sometimes giving back to others is a way to give to yourself as well. So consider that um, if you're looking for that opportunity, check out voaut.org. We're in the middle of a legislative session, and as president and CEO, I'm sure you're aware of what lawmakers can do and undo in a 45-day session. Is there anything that you're watching or wanting to put on people's radar in that regard? The main push from the homeless perspective is affordable housing. That is what we're hoping for. Governor Cox had put $128 million in his budget, and we are grateful for that. Um, lots of efforts and conversations over time about housing affordability issues in general. And when we talk about um, creating deeply affordable housing for extremely um, uh, low income individuals, it takes extra funding to make sure it pencils out. And so that's what we need this funding for. So please advocate with us for um, $128 million to help create affordable housing. Great. We will put links in tonight's show notes because folks, you can still sign up COVID protocols in place to help out, especially at the Youth Resource Center. You need folks to come down and cook meals and uh, other uh, essential activities, Kathy. And there's also urgent need. You know, we just got through the holidays, which focuses everyone's generosity, it seems like, Kathy. But what mm -hmm. are some of the top needs that you have right now for drop-off donations? You know, we're actually looking for blankets these days. So that would be super helpful. We are sheltering additional people this winter. And um, that's part of what we need. Just cover people up when they lay down to get a, a safe place to sleep that's warm. 
And so that is a big one. We're always looking for socks and underwear and sweats and and things that uh, we can hand out to individuals who are serving. Kathy Bray, Key Cable, and Sydney LaCour of Volunteers of America of Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link. And again, thanks to everyone who, during our last fundraiser at the end of the year, chose Gifts for Good and supported Volunteers of America of Utah and their work helping homeless youth get the documents they need to build their lives. More details online at krcl.org. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. And now for all you film lovers out there, a preview conversation about the Slam Dance Film Festival, which opened today online. On-demand access to over 100 films, features, short films, episodics, live filmmaker Q&A, special guests, and panels. I went straight to the source for more information from Taylor Miller, manager for Slam Dance Unstoppable. But first, Michael Morin, festival producer. Michael, welcome. Taylor, welcome from Slam Dance and uh, the All Grown Up Film Festival. No, let's get you out of the shadow of all the other ones that happen in Utah this time of the year. Michael, give us the dates and what's going down this year. Yeah, well, we are uh, doing a online festival this year. And the dates are January 27th uh, through February 6th. Um, and uh, yeah, this is our, this will be our second year doing an online format. Um, Last year, we had a lot of success, and uh, we're looking forward to doing that again this year. Any so. themes that are rising up through the content that is going to be shared online? You know, I think Taylor probably could speak best towards this. But <laughs> one thing that we've really focused on over the last few years is accessibility, and that's kind of why, you know, we've tried to keep everything as accessible as we can on, on our online platform. You know, our ticket's only $10.00. You know, unlike most uh, online festivals, um, and I, I feel like um, being able to reach a wider audience uh, is the the best way to be accessible. Taylor, I know you probably have some stuff on that. Yeah, Taylor, tell us more about the more than 100 films from around the world. What do you got? 28 features, 79 shorts, and more, right? That's right. That's right. Thank you, Laura. And I just want to thank you for this opportunity. This is this is absolutely awesome. Uh, to be to be a part of this and and to speak all things slam dance and yeah all things Utah really um, you know it's uh, I, I would say that that for for this year uh, you know last year as well but but this year I think you know the theme of inclusivity uh, is, is pretty huge and also um, you know perseverance I I think that those those themes go go hand in hand with the origin of slam dance as well right we go back to 1995 and a festival that was born of you know rejection and then ends up uh you know kind of coming into its own just as it's you know being born of this rejection into a place where now you know i think what is it what 28 28 years right Wow. We are, um, you know, the, the, the foundation of slam dance has never wavered. It's never changed. But the pillars, I feel like, of, of our, you know, of our, of our strength and of what we want to continue to learn more about um, and want to continue to uh, support and to celebrate, we continually try to, you know, put these themes in discussion with each other, whether it's a short film and a feature or 
episodics or, you know, a breakthrough. Um, Unstoppable has really, uh, and, and, and Michael mentioned it, you know, accessibility is everything to us right now. And, you know, Unstoppable, the Unstoppable program was born during the pandemic. You know, it was, it was born last year. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a program within Slam Dance that's for and by creators with visible and non-visible disabilities. And I tell you what, these, uh, the, you know, the, the films this year, we, we opened it up to features. And I, I tell you what, it, it's some of, some of the best, um, n- not just the features, but just all around. You know, I feel like I say this every year about Slam Dance, but it really is, you know, some of the best films that I've ever seen. So I guess that just as long as I keep saying that every year, then I guess we're on track. <laughs> you know. All right. Let's talk about some of the films. I know there's over 100 that are 128, I think you said, that are now uh, going to be screened online. And I'm not asking you to name favorites. I'm just giving, asking for a tease of something to look for <laughs> from uh, a couple from each of you. Taylor, what do you got? You know, yeah, that's so difficult. Um, I'm going to go, you know, so let me just tell you a little bit about uh, a couple features um, for Unstoppable. This year we have three features. We have Straighten Up and Fly Right, which I will tell you right now, uh, filmmaker uh, Stephen Tenenbaum and Kristen Abate, and uh, I've never seen a film like this. I mean that completely, and um, I absolutely adore this film. Uh, we have two other features, so there's three total in Unstoppable. One is called Poppy. And the other is called Iron Family, and they're both absolutely beautiful. Um, in terms of short films, well, wait, let's a, a let's just back up because the Unstoppable slate, Taylor, um, is yeah. uh, is about the 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 subjects are about folks living with disabilities. Are, is there equally that kind of representation behind the camera? Uh, absolutely, and and I just want to say I was kind of like rushing because when you were like, okay, give it to me, Taylor, I was like, okay, <laughs> I, I like had this like timer. I was like, okay, <laughs> no, uh, no, no, you let, got let, time. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Okay, I got time. Okay. Yeah, so that's what's really incredible about the Unstoppable program, right, is that it's films by or about people living with disabilities. And those disabilities can be visible or non-visible. So, for example, it could be the writer, it could be the director, it could be in front of, you know, it, it could be in front of the camera. Uh, it could be the actor or the actresses that uh, live with disabilities. Um, something that I think is really important for, for you to know, Laura, uh, is that, you know, if a film is submitted to Unstoppable and it's an able-bodied person portraying a disabled, you know, person through that role, it's immediately disqualified. And that was, that, those were guidelines that were set up through our programmers that are also, you know, the co-founders um, of Unstoppable, that, you know, authenticity is, it's it's got to be there completely. So yes, to answer your question, there you know the uh, the main subject of Iron Family is a 32 year old woman named Jasmine, and she has Down syndrome. Straighten up and fly right. Uh, Stephen Tenenbaum. I, I cannot pronounce the the. Uh, it's very difficult to pronounce, but it's it's a spinal. Uh, spinal degeneration uh, that he has been living with for a very long time. And um, Kristen uh, Abate, uh, when she was a child, she, um, 
I believe had an infection and she now lives with sort of a, a very specific arthritis. Um, but both of them have been best friends for years and years and years. Um, and both, you know, have kind of came together to make this. Um, but for Steven's condition, he is permanently bent over. Um, and it's something that um, in their film, when you see uh, Straighten Up and Fly Right, um, you'll, you'll come to understand why this is such a raw and original uh, piece of storytelling. Um, you know, so to answer your question, yes. I mean, I will also say that, you know, that, that our programmers also identify as being disabled or living with some form of visible or non-visible disability. In the unstoppable um, so slate, whether yeah. In the unstoppable slate, yes. And just as, um, you know, we have the, for the jury as well, that will also be unstoppable programmers. So that's also a really, like, awesome thing that people have gotten really excited about, you know, they were they were really thrilled to kind of hear that last year that they're the programmers for Unstoppable, they're the jury for Unstoppable, and you know several of our of our uh, programmers for this year, and then also jury members, they uh, they had films in the Unstoppable program last year, so they're they're Unstoppable alumni. Wonderful. So, Michael, how about you? Anything special you want to, or even a marker you want to put down just because you like the film? Well, you know, uh, being on the production end of things, I don't get to watch as many of these films uh, as I normally would like to. But I do know that the uh, the civil debt is something that uh, I, I I enjoyed thoroughly, and I know a lot of our programmers are a real soft spot for it. It stars uh, Whitmer Thomas, the comedian slash uh, I guess musician, uh, and directed by Clay Tatum. Um, that one is something. It's one of our opening night films as well, and I think. Uh, it's definitely, if you're looking for a laugh, worth checking out. It's really quirky. Okay, I also wait, wait, wait. We got to give folks the, 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 the synopsis here. A misanthropic, struggling photographer just wants to watch TV and eat candy while his wife is out of town. But when a desperate old pal resurfaces, his plans are thwarted with spooky consequences. So you're saying dark comedy? Yes. <laughs> Very much a dark comedy. But, um, and then also Poppy, you know, that that's a part of the Unstoppable program. And yeah, uh, I just, uh, uh, watching, I, I watch Poppy and, um, it's you know, fantastic, some, right? Oh my, it's, it's so fantastic. It's like nothing you've ever seen. And I, you know, sometimes you walk away from a lot of the Unstoppable, pro I mean, all the films really, but some of these films and just, uh, dumbfounded not really you yeah. know well let's tell folks about poppy a young woman with down syndrome is forced to employ secret strategies to achieve her ambition of becoming an apprentice motor mechanic so you've you've heard about a few of the films on tap at slam dance where can folks find out more and pick up the incredibly reasonably priced pass to slam dance this year michael um it, all they have to do is go to slamdance.com uh, and it has an entire list of our lineup, uh, as well as other information, and uh, they can pre-order their uh, festival pass there. I also really like the narrative shorts, the doc shorts. You've got so many breakout categories to get films in that perhaps by their length or their description wouldn't fit another film festival, Michael. Yeah, I mean, we have a, we have uh, we seem to keep growing in categories and. Um, I kind of love that. Something new. <laughs> I feel like every year there's something new that we're exploring. I mean, even this year we're 
uh, venturing into the world of uh, NFTs uh, with a special uh, kind of panel uh, interactive program called Black, uh, excuse me, Blockchain Fairy Tales. Blockchain uh, Fairy Tales? Yep. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to do it justice, but it's uh, <laughs> an interactive uh, experience that um, filmmakers or fans or people can take uh, part in uh, during the festival as well that helps explore like the possibilities of what we, we can do with NFTs and, uh, you know, uh, Web3 and all of that fun stuff. So, well, and I do want to explore before I let you go a category called the Department of Anarchy. Taylor, what is that about? Listen, and listen, this defining anarchy is the first problem. It's like, you know, trying to understand anarchy and the Department of Anarchy is part of all the fun and also almost impossible because the moment that you start to have these, this discourse about it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's everything that it, 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 don't even try to frame it or reframe it, just deframe it, right? It's everything that's off the fringe. It's everything that goes way, way, way underneath the underground. I feel like when it, in, in terms of understanding where film is right now, and it's pushing the envelope so far to have us reassess what does it mean to have content and what does it mean to really, you know, be inside a story? And how do we, you know, how, how, are, we, how are we pushing each other by understanding it and having, you know, dialogue about it? So it's wonderful and it's crazy and it's chaotic. And it's, it's uh, it kind of, you know, it's either or, or both and in between. I must say my interest has been piqued by Scarlet Red in the Department of Anarchy, a retro futuristic reinvention oh. of Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Mask of Red Death. Edgar Allan Poe, my, probably my first uh, nightmare literary-wise, right? <laughs> and the movies they used to show right, you in right. junior high. That's safe for a Halloween crowd at the junior <laughs> high. We'll give you one of the Edgar Allan Poe movies. And I'm kind of terrified to see Scarlet Red in the Department of Anarchy <laughs> category and slam dance. Well, Taylor and Michael, thank you so much for giving us a bit of a preview. And we hope to dip into some of the films Absolutely. and use them as jumping off hey, points Laura, to conversations. I, yes, Taylor. Yeah, I just wanted to give a, a special thank you to the University of Utah. Um, yeah. They are sponsoring our ASL needs for the festival. Um, to further make our festival, you know, as accessible as it can be for our deaf and hard of hearing filmmakers. And I just want to show them a little extra love and thank them because, you know, the history of, of the support that we've gotten from the University of Utah and just Utah in general, you know, has been, um, it's kind of a brilliant friendship alongside Slam Dance. And I just want to thank everybody for that. And what's the website one more time for folks to catch up with Slam Dance? slamdance.com Michael Morin and Taylor Miller of Slamdance check tonight's show notes for a link and check out all the great films that they're offering for the next week or so and again everything online as they pivot once again due to COVID I'm Laura Jones this is Radioactive coming up next barbecue skills nature or nurture male or female gender studies professor Kilo Zamora and chef Max Winterholler will be here to discuss stick around Utah has more than 10,000 nonprofits, like Women of the World, which needs practical English volunteers and mentors. You can help forcibly displaced women make Salt Lake City their home and build community through self-reliance and trust. Details at womenofworld.org. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, 
Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8. Gianni on the Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich Parks at 1 a.m. Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3. And John Florence kicks off your weekend. Friday's edition of Brand New Day starts at 6 a.m. For the rest of the hour, University of Utah Gender Professor Studies Kilo Zamora is back to have another conversation about gender and nature with me and tonight's special guest, Chef Max Winterholler. We're going to get to that barbecue skills question about nature or nurture, male or female. But first, I ask Kilo to remind everybody what we're doing with these conversations. Yeah, so audience, um, what we're, we're doing here is Lara and I are doing some crowdsourcing. So we are bringing in uh, creative thinkers, people from different professions who can talk about how their, their life's work can recreate gender. Sometimes I'm calling the third eye of gender. And uh, what we're hoping happens in these conversations is we can construct a class at the University of Utah called Gender and Nature. So if any of you are out there and this, this conversation sparks any thoughts for you, please email me and um, I would love to be in conversation with you about ways you'd like to see a class like this get designed. All right, let's get to our special guest. Would you like to do the introductions, Kilo? So McKenna Winterholler, known to everyone as Max, has been working professionally in kitchens for the last 10 years. And more specifically, as a pastry chef for the last four. She sees food as a fundamental to all humans and is interested in the ways we each approach our relationships to food. And a small extra couple of thoughts from on my end. Uh, Max also loves these 1930s, 1940s surrealist artists. Uh, and so I found a connection between she and I on that. And she unapologetically loves tacos. And she <laughs> and I have been talking about tacos all over the city um, and it's been fun to get to know Max from that point of view. Well, we're going to need a top 10 taco list to post with this interview, Max. And <laughs> I'm really interested in this conversation because I think of the relationship that women in particular have with food, uh, men for that matter. And there seems to be very specific gender roles uh, in preparation in the home versus preparation commercially. Also, um, food is solace. I think for so many of us, Kilo, where do you want to dig in? Ooh, we're going to get to all that, Lara. And um, Max also has a bachelor's degree in anthropology. So she'll be able to offer some additional insights to your questions. But I would like just to begin by asking Max um, to share with the audience how you chose your profession or did your profession choose you as a chef? Um, yeah, my profession chose me. Um, it was kind of by accident. Um, my uncle is a chef. And so I had grown up around uh, someone who was in professional kitchens, but I had graduated college um, at 21 and didn't really know if I wanted to continue because um, it would have basically required me to go into academia. So at the time I had a friend who owned a restaurant uh, oddly enough, on the university campus. And he gave me a job there. And I've kind of just never looked back. <laughs> oh, wow. It, you know, what's interesting is you mentioned your uncle. But also, I was looking up your last name, Winterholler. Mm -hmm. And I found out that in overwhelmingly in the 1900s, 
women with the last name Winterholler worked in the restaurant business? Wow. I honestly had no idea. Um, what I know about my biological father's side is uh, they were Russian immigrants. Um, and so from Americanized Russian, uh, the, that's how the name Winterholler came about, but had no idea about the kitchen connection. Kitchen connections. <laughs> um, so I, as you're thinking about being a chef, I want to give, get a context question for our audience to think about. Okay. So I want to think about norms um, and hierarchy for a moment. Okay. So are there norms and hierarchies in American restaurants? Um, absolutely. Uh, restaurants are built on hierarchies. Uh, so basically when you start in a kitchen, um, the like lowest, I hate to say man, but the lowest person on the totem pole is typically always the dishwasher. Um, and then from there, it's like your pantry cook, um, your grill cook, saute, sous chef, chef, and then possibly owner from there. Uh, this structure is pretty much found in every kitchen in the United States. Uh, there's some places that are trying to do it differently, but overwhelmingly, that is how the hierarchy is structured. And that's back of house specific. That's not, I'm not speaking about front of house. Show of hands, who's worked in a restaurant? <laughs> I think all of us here and so many of our listeners. But I'm thinking of a BBC comedy I saw in the early 90s called Chef. And there was constantly that display of hierarchy in there. Yes, chef. Yes, chef. And then I think of Gordon Ramsay. And I don't think of kitchens as pleasant places to work, Max. Um, yeah, they're not for the faint of heart. I High will, stress. I will say that. Yes. Um, I, uh, I've had a couple people throughout the years ask me if, or just basically approach me and wonder if they should start cooking and my thoughts on it. And I've pretty much told every single one of them that they should do something else. Um, the pay is not great. The hours are horrible. Uh, you are, it's insanely high stress. It, it takes a special person. I'll say that. As you're, as you're thinking about that, this next question, I think might, um, is perfect segue because I, I want to think about in, in these kind of stressful environments, there is a place where our identities can be forged. Like we can have a, such a deep resiliency that we can construct something that would have not happened otherwise without such, such a hierarchy around us. So in, in a profession that has been dominated by men, how has it been a place for you to forge your gender identity? Um, I feel like it has had, uh, it evokes a kind of extreme reactions for me in that um, because it is so masculine and such a like hyper-masculine environment, in many ways, I feel like in my everyday life, I've kind of had to um, swing totally the other way. And I don't mean, I don't necessarily view everything as like masculine, feminine, or this or that. Like, I, I just don't see things in black and white that way. However, I will say that 
the way I have to be in a kitchen does not carry over into my normal life pretty much at all. Um, and then, and that's for a good reason. You know, I wouldn't want that personality in every, um, part of my life. I'm sorry. I'm digressing a little bit. Can you just remind me of your question one more time? No, you're, you're not digressing. You're actually really, I mean, what, what I'm hearing from you, Max, is that in this hyper-masculine space, you begin to really recognize what that means. And that when you're there, you have to use one type of gender expression. But then yes. as you leave, leave that space, you'd be very conscious about how you've constructed another gender expression. It's not that one because uh, that one's at the restaurant and there's another one you want to use maybe in the home. Yeah, I think I felt for years that my professional um, identity is very different from my uh, sort of like everyday identity. And I often don't have crossover between the two. Um, it's pretty rare that I hang out with people that I work with and it's not out of like disdain for them or anything. It's just, um, I spend, typically we spend so much time together already, uh, that most of us don't really want to see each other outside of work. It's like, I just spent 12 hours with you today. Like I don't really need to spend any more time with you, but, um, yeah, in many ways, I think kitchens have just pointed out the absurdity of gender to me, uh, especially like binary gender uh, and especially like the absurdity of hypermasculinity. And that's, you know, an interesting side note is I often choose to put myself in these hypermasculine spaces. Um, I grew up in punk and hardcore. And then now as an adult, um, I do jujitsu. So I'm, I find myself very often in these uh, very concentrated spaces. So um, I'm very aware of how gender operates on a daily basis. I find that really interesting, especially the, the, the punk, you know, having been a musician in this town since the um, 80s and going to the same scene and trying to literally carve out your space. And I use yes. <laughs> I use a kitchen term too, right? Carve it out. Yeah. Um, I find that fascinating because um, it's a certain kind of confrontation um, and a refusal to blink in a certain sense, which is maybe perhaps that masculine trait we were talking about. Yeah, and I think that that sort of idea also exists in the kitchen as a woman, you really have to carve out your space and really kind of like stand firm. There's a lot of hazing that happens in kitchens. Um, and especially to women, I think that hazing takes a really different type of, uh, form. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of carryover between the two things. I'm seeing, I'm having this like maybe far-fetched connection, but it feels right to me about in the, in the kitchen, there's high level of skill, which you have to, you have to acquire over time in jujitsu, same thing. Yeah. Um, and then also maybe in, in both of those plus the punk, so in, in all three of those, there, there is a place that feels like they're alternative spaces. 
that they are pushing against some kind of a norm. In addition to that, Max, I'm thinking about um, Leonora Carrington, one of your favorite authors and surrealists. And one of the things that they say about her is that she just had a refusal to do things in normality. Does that speak somewhere to you and how you think about maybe where your gender's going um, as you continue to develop it? Yeah, that is speaks deeply to me. Um, I think in many ways, uh, my personality and just like me as a person, I have a refusal to accept normalcy. Uh, I think that's why I ended up in a kitchen and have stayed for so long is just because it is very subcultural in the same way that punk and hardcore are and honestly jujitsu is too um they're all kind of like their own weird spaces if you've never done any of them you're kind of just you kind of just don't know and it's hard to explain and same thing with what you said kilo they're all very skill-based especially jujitsu and kitchens there's so much crossover I mean, honestly, there have been so many times where my coach has gone over something and said, okay, let's do it. And I've almost said, yes, chef to him. <laughs> um, just because that's, it's like the same attitude. It's like, okay, let's do it. Let's go guys. Like, yes, chef. Um, so yeah, a lot of crossover between the two and it hasn't been lost on me. Gender dynamics power dynamics at play in all these kind of environments that we've talked about, Max and Kilo. Yes. Everything kind of on 11 in terms of the expression. Oh, yeah. Everything is um, sort of extreme in their ways. Um, I, I think that I don't live in a kind of nebulous zone at all. They're all very, uh, I hate to use this word, but almost caricatures of uh, certain aspects of culture that we experience. Um, but they're just, you know, I think pushing against a lot of the normalcy that exists within a larger cultural context. Yeah, I get you saying that, Lara and Max. I'm also like, I, I continue to chew on as a gender studies teacher, like when I see people who do normal really well, that also feels really extreme to me. And sometimes I feel like it seems violent. Like when I see someone who's like, oh my gosh, they present normal, the very, very best, like Utah normal. And I (laughs) think about them and I'm like, I don't, I'm having a hard time deciding if that's better or less than what we might see as a toxic masculinity space in a, in a restaurant. Like they, to me feel like they do, they're a commentary on us anyways. Yeah, you know, I hate to say this because I, I think any way anyone wants to present or is totally fine and acceptable. But to me, um, the way that I view acceptance of normalcy is complacent in the ways all of these things interact. Like, am I saying going into hypermasculine spaces all the time is a, an amazing experience? No. But I also think that on a day-to-day basis, I'm not just accepting the status quo that exists 
And I'm constantly trying to challenge myself to think differently, to see the points of absurdity that exist and the ways that we can change. Um, and I also, as a side note, would like to say, I don't think all points of masculinity are negative. Uh, I think it kind of has gotten a really bad rap, but I, I don't view masculinity in like an extremely negative way. It's the friction when we come together, how we choose when we know ourselves and stay true to that is one thing. But then when we come into community, that's where the friction comes, Kilo. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, and what I'm getting at too here is back, Max, back to the beginning is like, I think there's a third eye of gender that you're developing. When I say third eye, I just mean like something that's not been prescribed, but something that you're constructing on your own. And it's about how you're just as like a chef, like you're looking at all the ingredients on the, in front of you and trying to construct something new uh, that is unique for your palate. Uh, and you're looking at it from an entirely different way. And I'm hearing that coming from you. I'm hearing it as you dabble in all these different spaces that you're in and that you're you're trying to like, and I hope all of us are trying to construct this, what we would use in gender studies, this kind of queer, this queer way of understanding what, what gender is. Let me move you over to, to food. Um, okay. I'm really interested in this topic of your relationship to food. Uh, as a as a chef and you see food maybe in a very different way than an average consumer might see food or uh, and when you're when you go to the grocery store um, I'm a pedestrian when I go to the grocery store when you go to the grocery store you're a professional um, have you ever noticed how food's marketed in a gendered way and what does that say to you as a as a professional yeah it's it's really interesting I think I've recently become really obsessed with the idea of food being marketed in a gendered way um, and specifically the aesthetics of those of the marketing used. So my example is always like the baking aisle is very much like soft pinks and blues and greens. You know, they're like very um, I hate to say this, but like nice colors. They're comforting. Yes, exactly. They're like comforting the colors. Home, the not, nursery. Yeah, they're not like bolder in your face. But then you go to the condiment aisle and it's hideous. Everything is like either like weird sort of beige tones or a lot like really bright primary colors. And then you start getting into labels and that's like a whole nother thing. But yeah. In many ways, I think food is absolutely uh, gendered. And especially if we think about like the way in my head, a marketing person would think it's like, oh, well, this mom is going to be more likely to buy this cereal over this cereal because of these points that we're going to put on the packaging. Um, so like, I think food and the way it's marketed toward us is so much deeper than any of us really want to admit. Um, there is, there's a lot to it. Max, I have a question for you. I'm thinking about the, 
the U.S. Con- like the U.S. context and or how we've attributed barbecues to the male domain and produce to the female domain. I know you have a degree in anthropology. Can you see how this narrative has influenced both our understanding of history and has carried this false narrative into the present? Yeah, I think um, it begins with the question of, you know, like food in nature. You know, um, I think the way you're presenting gender in nature is kind of the similar trajectory, but most people's image that they get in their head when we talk about, you know, um, ancient humans uh, in their, the way they cook, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, There's a very specific image. It's the women gathering nuts and berries, et cetera, and then the men going out and hunting um, this has largely been disproven. Uh, it's been shown in many cultures that women have hunted too, but also that um, the nuts and berries part is, is over 80% of the diet. Um, but the importance has been placed on the hunting aspect for so many years. Um, that obviously has carried over into um, the culture now where I think, uh, traditionally a man really like a home cook couldn't, doesn't really have to know much, but if he knows how to grill, then people are (laughs) like, oh, he's an amazing cook. And it's like, is he an amazing cook or does he just know how to cook a steak? Yeah. Um, cause that's not the same thing. That's great, but that doesn't mean he's an amazing cook. Um, so I think, very much you know that way the way we think about food is like men handle the meat and i look at every thanksgiving i you know as especially as white people at least i've been to is like the some guy is carving the turkey which is hilarious because especially as i've started cooking and like i can carve this turkey better than you but it's fine if you want to carve it go for it i don't care (laughs) um but yeah it's it's just been it's very, again, it's so much more complex than I think most people are willing to understand that our perception of food and our perception of cooking is so deeply ingrained. Mm. Women, and especially like in professional kitchens too, this gets even more exaggerated, but you know, like women are expected to do the large majority of cooking at home uh, while men just don't really have to do anything. And that carries over into the way we consume food, whether it's grocery shopping or going out to eat, et cetera. There's, there's so many different facets of this conversation. Did I answer the question appropriately? (laughs) Well, I think it's absolutely. And I think it's interesting because you layer capitalism on top of it and I think that's where the gender norms then in uh, uh, business start to to change because me growing up, my mom, fabulous, she was a home chef, right? She did her okay. own cooking classes. And so then I remember going out, starting to go to restaurants and stuff in my 20s going, where are all the women? They're, they're the ones that know how to cook because that was my experience, right? Um and so I just find it really interesting when you then, oh, if it's for money, then it's the men who are doing the, the cooking. Or if it's a business, then it's the men who, 
And I don't know, I'm getting on my high horse here, Max and Kilo, but no, I do find no. that, that capitalist twist to be interesting. You just gallop away, Laura. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I think that's a, a really excellent point. Um, you know, that it's, it is a lot to do with that. But I also think it has to do with uh, who gets taken seriously in a professional context. It's typically going to be men. Um, and it, when we layer restaurants and food into that, uh, we have this like very old school, uh, patriarchal French way of cooking. Uh, and, you know, earlier in the conversation, we, we talked about hierarchies. That's where that stems from is classical French cooking, which to be honest, I love, but there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Is social media or, you know, these food services that we can now order for our lives changing that at all? Because it feels like it's at least um, uh, segmenting this conversation. And again, I think that split between who cooks at home and who cooks at the restaurant is on, is on display in the grocery store, right? Because if you're, as a professional chef, you don't order from Smith's. You don't go down to Smith's and go pick up your order. You, it's commodities, um, and you get it from the wholesaler and, and such. Or if you're local and sustainable, you go to the local farmer. In the grocery store, they're marketing to the person that they think makes the bulk of the decisions in the home for food, which is going to be the mom, the mom role. But then these Hello Fresh or what have you, with all the unboxing videos, I see a wide variety of people and genders and expressions um, engaging in that conversation, Max. I think it depends on what type of service we're talking about and also how much those services play into diet culture. Because I think the the real, the key here is if they're trying to promote like, oh, we're going to send you all these meals, but they're for healthy living, it's going to be so much more gendered than it, if it, it was just like HelloFresh, where HelloFresh is not necessarily like branded as healthy um it's kind of just like oh it's easy it's simple here you go um and i think they're probably a little more intentional with their reach versus something like uh i get targeted ads a lot on instagram for some of these i think the one that i'm i'm in my head i'm thinking of is daily harvest which is like a smoothie one um and I feel like that one is really gendered. I've only seen like pretty ladies in their ads and the way they look is very, um, it has a certain aesthetic to it, I guess is what I want to say. So much subtext going on in these conversations, Kilo, that we don't even, it's not verbal. Yeah, I was thinking we need a dietitian in one of our shows, Lara. <laughs> we go, go into yeah. diet culture. Yeah, because then there's, exactly because there's a professional athlete and how dietitians are marketed to the professional athlete. And then there's yep. the, the professional dieter or someone who struggles with their weight, which in the, I think our cultural landscape, they tend to pigeonhole as women. So we're talking about gender and nature. Kilo Zamora from the University of Utah, gender studies professor, has been bringing these conversations to Radioactive with members of our community to crowdsource a direction for a class, Kilo. When's that class gonna be? The class started. I did. It started. Yes. And I want to tell you one small thing about it. Last night, the extra credit assignment, which was uh, January 17th, 
the extra credit assignment was to howl at the wolf moon and send it to me. <laughs> and all night long until like two in the morning, I was getting texts from students who were howling at the moon and sending them to me. And it just brought the deepest joy, but the class has already started. Um, and we're just, we're having fun. I'm still doing interviews because we're pulling together what's going to be happening in the spring um, of the course. Excellent. And our guest today is Max Winterholler, a chef in town, pastry chef in particular, and that is a chef after my own heart. <laughs> What's your specialty? Max, Max, oh yeah, what is your specialty? My specialty? Uh, what do you mean when you I, say that? Oh, ooh. Your yeah, top what do you three. want to say, Laura? Yeah, your top, your top three. What is the thing that you make the best or that you love the best that you make? Oh, that changes every menu. Um, every menu I've ever done, I have a specific favorite. Um, I, I never have a particular favorite, to be honest. It's so hard asking chefs what your specialty are, what your favorite thing to cook is, is almost like it's the same question as when people ask me what my favorite song is. I'm like that answer is impossible. I like it changes week to week. Um, this week, I mean, what have I been really liked making? Um, I have this um, vegan dessert on my menu right now. That's a play on bananas foster that I love. Uh, I think it's really, really special. In our last couple of minutes together, Max, I am I would really interested in the future of Max um, more than even my class. I'm interested in like if you were to see yourself in ten years from now with as food as one of your guides to developing your own gender identity. What do you think you're going to teach yourself that you don't understand currently? I really just hope to keep thinking about things in a way that's meaningful. This, these conversations are really inspiring to me and is what I hope to do in a professional trajectory. Um, so it's more like, how can I incorporate these bigger ideas and thought processes into my profession? And I don't really quite have an answer yet. Um, you know, I try not to let my profession be the only thing about me, um, because I think there's so much more and that seems like a very capitalist net narrative, but I will say that I do love food. And so I hope that I can find a way to be critical about the ways in which we consume food, the ways in which it's prepared for us. Um, and, the, and especially the ways that we as a society interact with restaurants and how, how we can improve it for the better. Cause there's a lot of room for improvement. Thank you, Max. Can you tell the audience where they can come try one of your yummy desserts? Yeah, of course. Um, um, so right now I'm working for Provisions, Ginger Street, and Sunday's Best. Um, the dessert, the Bananas Foster, is at Provisions. Um, that's the one definitely uh, with the higher end desserts. So I can be a bit more cerebral in my take. Um, Sunday's best is an all day brunch spot and ginger street. is just 
Um, we offer ice cream and these little things called G-bars. So that's where you can find me. Kilo Zamora, gender studies professor at the University of Utah and local chef Max Winterholler. Check tonight's show notes for links to our guests, their organizations and their causes. I hope that something you heard tonight sparked an interest, perhaps even to get involved. Questions, comments, suggestions, send your feedback to radioactive at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.